0: You know, I often say that education is all about relationships, right? And what if the majority of what you've been taught, except on the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, of course, but (laughs) what if the majority of what you've been taught about relationships is wrong? Now what? Education is all about relationships, leadership about relationships. The majority of what I've been taught is wrong. What do you do? Well, Lucky for you, on today's show, I talked to Eric Barker, who's uh, making his second appearance on the show, and he wrote a book called, called Plays Well with Others. And it's, it's about what we get wrong often when it comes to relationships and how we can be a bit more right. So it's, it's a great book. I got an advanced copy. I read it. I really enjoyed it, and I recommend that you pick it up as a listener of the BLBS podcast. Hey, it's Danny, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. (music) Establish your legacy with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Learn from Harvard Business and Education School faculty as you develop the frameworks, skills, and knowledge you need to drive change improvement in your learning community. Apply now for our June 22 cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Are you automatically tracking online student participation data during covid Innovative school leaders across the country have started tracking online student participation using TeachFX because it's one of the most powerful ways to improve student outcomes during COVID, especially for English learners and students of color. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Well, Eric Parker is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which has sold over half a million copies and been translated into 19 languages. It was even the subject of a question on Jeopardy. Over half a million people have subscribed to his weekly newsletter. His work has been covered by the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Financial Times, and others. Eric is also a sought after speaker, having given talks at MIT, Yale, Google, the US Military Central Command, and the Olympic Training Center. His new book, Plays Well With Others, will be released by HarperCollins in May of 2022. Eric, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. I'm curious, do, do you uh, remember the question on Jeopardy? I didn't, see that. I didn't see that show. So it's okay if you don't, but I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm afraid I'm
1: going to butcher it. But it was, it was, I, I, I think it was really, I think it was under like the, the self-improvement was the, okay. uh, was the category. And, sure. I, and I think it related to the bark up the wrong tree idiom.
0: Gotcha. No worries. So this new book plays well with others. Uh, opens with a hostage situation. There you are in in the thick of it, and you talk about the power of negotiators using labeling. And one of the insights that you share with the reader is that it works in hostage situations, but not with your spouse. <laughs> so what's going on there?
1: Yeah, this was uh, this was uh, I did training with the NYPD hostage negotiation team, and. I was really excited uh, to be doing it. It was a lot of fun. And I heard them using active listening and I was like, Oh, fantastic. You know, here, here, look, if it can get people to put guns down and surrender to the police, it's incredibly powerful. I've I've got the skeleton key to, uh, to human relationships. And then we were hanging out uh, after the training and the negotiators are like, Oh yeah, this won't work at home with your spouse. And I was like, what? And it was funny because I've read so many books writing my blog and just so much that all recommended active listening. And it turned out the negotiators were right when they tested it. Like the idea of active listening is fantastic, but most people can't do it in the moment in the good, in the good hostage negotiators, they're a third party. You know, they're, they're not being the person being accused of something like in therapy situations, you know, there's two spouses in marital therapy. The the therapist is a third party. When you're a third party, active listening is a lot easier because nobody's accusing you of doing something wrong. But in, you know, a a spousal relationship, the accusations are being leveled against you. And it's so hard for people to use active listening in those situations. So it's very interesting for me to see from hostage negotiators that, you know,
0: some of the stuff we hear in a lot of relationship books, you know, isn't always accurate. Right, right. And in the book, you also mentioned, you know, often our problems with others start with our inaccurate perception of them. And the ruckus maker listening, you know, they're a school leader and we'll find, you know, what you have to say on this topic, I think, super interesting. So can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah. In terms of reading people, we're we're pretty bad at it. (laughs) It's just across the board. Basically, when we first meet a stranger, our ability to to intuit their, their thoughts and feelings, we're only about 20% accurate. With long-term friends, we hit about 30%. And with spouses, we only get up to 35%. So whatever you think your spouse is thinking or feeling, two-thirds of the time you're wrong. This is research by Nicholas Epley at University of Chicago, and we're just really bad at it in general. And what I realized looking at the research is that there's kind of a low ceiling on how much we can improve so the trick to actually getting better at it isn't trying to improve your reading skills. The trick is to try and get the other person to send you stronger signals mm-hmm. to get the other person to make the other person more readable is actually the key. We're, we're never going to be Sherlock Holmes, just detecting everything a person thinks from body language and, and nuance, little nuances. But if we can get the other person to be more readable that's how we can we can understand them
0: better. Yeah, I, I was uh, that idea definitely connected with me. And when it comes to I guess being more readable, I'm wondering if the the ruckus maker listening should also think about his or her own presence uh, because they want their messages to land right with the the community they serve. And sometimes school leaders might be a little too stoic in the face or had that poker face. And what, what they find is folks come to their office, the principal's office, and say, are, are you mad at me? Like, are you having a bad day? Like, what's going on? Just because they can't read. So would you suggest that, yeah, as that principal, like, you should make yourself more readable as well? I mean, clarity is really important. A mistake we consistently make
1: is we, we're overconfident that we can read other people but by the same token, we're usually overconfident that people know what we're thinking. You know, we, we all have that friend who will say, uh, remember that guy at the place with the thing? Remember he did that stuff? And you're just like, "What? I what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I don't, they think you can kind of read their mind, that you can hear their thoughts. And we need to be a little bit more clear and explicit about where we're coming from, because we typically feel, A, that, you know, people are, going to accurately understand what what we're thought and thinking and feeling, even if we're not clear about it. And number two, another common bias is what's called egocentric anchoring, which is we typically think others feel like we do. And that can be a mistake because sometimes people are coming from a very different perspective. So getting it out there, being clear, being explicit about where you're at can help dispel some of these, you know, these mistakes very early on until because we've all had this conversation that goes really poorly and then midway through we go wait a second what were you thinking and they say something that is that completely changes your perspective where you're like no 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 no. that that that's not how it went it's completely different we want to get that information out in the open and be clear and direct so that people don't don't make any mistakes in terms of interpreting what they think happened
0: yeah, that, that egocentric thinking is really interesting. I remember uh, years ago, probably at least, uh, at least a decade or more, I was working with a therapist in, uh, in Chicago and we were sizing up one issue. And one of the things I was struggling with, I've matured since then, but just seeing uh, some, some events is very black and white. This is clearly right. This is clearly wrong. And I'll just never forget. I mean, it was such a simple question. He's like, well, well, it wasn't a question. The statement was uh, basically everybody doesn't, might not see it that way. And that was, like, mind-blowing for me in the moment. Like, what? This thing that I clearly believe is absolutely right, like other people might think is, you know, wrong. And uh, that was, that was a, <laughs> an enlightening moment for me. So I think that's a bit about what you're talking about. So, you know, we, we're talking uh, perceptions of folks and this kind of stuff and mirroring and labeling uh, relationships with others. And I believe that school leaders are constantly sizing people up. You know, we're doing that in interviews and department meetings and, uh, you know, parents come in. They might be hot about some type of issue, discipline issues with students for sure. So what can you tell us about sizing people up that can help the ruckus maker who's listening? Well, first and foremost, it's
1: it's the good news is we're actually pretty good at first impressions, whereas reading the thoughts and feelings of somebody we're dealing with are pretty bad. But in terms of sizing somebody up, when we first meet them the research shows that roughly 70% of the time we're accurate. We, we, we do it immediately, quickly, unconsciously, but it's also a double-edged sword. The issue with first impressions is that we're usually, we're more often right than wrong. However, whatever first impression we get does tend to stick. So as teachers know better than anybody, you know, you know, 70% is well above chance, but 70% is still a D. <laughs> so we, we need to try and improve that even more to get more accurate readings on people. And what, what that involves, because what, the big issue here is confirmation bias, is that once we size somebody up, we get an impression from them, we're usually reluctant to update that. We, our brain is generally not acting like a good scientist and testing a hypothesis, our brain, you know, gets an idea and then locks on it. And then rather than seeking to test it, we're usually trying, we're looking at the data where, you know, the information we're getting from the person and we are looking for what agrees with us and we're kind of dismissing what doesn't. And we have to, if we want to really size people up accurately, we, we want to try and get out of this confirmation bias trap. What we want to do is, you know, note our impressions. What are we, what are we thinking about this person? And then kind of seeking to test them, basically saying, well, I'm, I'm getting the vibe. This isn't like a nice person. OK, well, well, hold on. You know, before I I slam down the gavel and make a judgment, you know, let me test this. Let, let me let me kind of in my brain, let me make this higher states. You know, what, what if what if this was going to determine if this person got capital punishment or not? Well, then I would pause and I, I'd take a second and I'd treat it more seriously. I wouldn't rush to judgment. So that's what we want to do to kind of strengthen our first impressions. But the other thing we need to keep in mind is that basically you get into some statistical issues here where if I meet somebody, I I get a first impression from them and I don't like them, I might seek to avoid them. Well, again, I'm only 70% accurate. So if I avoid somebody, I'm never going to get a chance to revise my judgments versus if I give somebody, if I like somebody, I'm going to try and see them more. And that will give me the opportunity to revise. So your, po- your initial positive impressions are always going lead to lead you towards greater accuracy because you're going to get a few more times to try them out versus when we have a negative impression of somebody, we don't get that second chance. So we, we really want to try and be open-minded, given that second chance, because that'll lead to greater accuracy. The second thing to keep in mind is these first impressions do tend to stick. So for educators, teachers, for anybody, when you first meet people, you do want to think about the impression that you want to make, because it is very likely to stick due to confirmation bias.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm curious, you know, from your personal life or, or your research and that kind of thing, if uh, the positive impressions, you know, lead us to more openness and curiosity and negative the negative ones seem to shut us down and that kind of thing for, for that leader, right? That ruckus maker who's listening, is there any type of activity tip or trick that you might encourage them to employ so that they do have that open, curious stance.
1: I mean, that's, I would say that's really the key is staying curious. Okay. Is just keeping your mind open, you know, and rather than kind of productivity wise, okay, I've made my judgment. I'm done. No, it's <laughs> like be curious about this person. Maybe they're having a tough day. You know, it's, it's, it's good to really sit there and ask questions because, A, it's going to lead to more accuracy on your part, but also the process of asking, asking questions is very flattering. Asking mm-hmm. questions tells the person you're interested in. You know, that can pull somebody out of this negative thing because the issue that we forget is that when we start judging more harshly, that can create this kind of vicious cycle where somebody makes a bad impression I'm not responding well, so I'm probably going to be more negative towards them. They're going to respond to that, and now you're you're stuck in a trap. So when we talk about people not clicking, that's usually a big part of not clicking with someone is that we judge them too harshly too fast. And in another part of the book, uh, with in the love and marriage section, you know, John Gottman's done research in terms of married relationships, and he found that just by listening to the first 3 minutes of a marital dispute he could predict how it would end because when it starts harshly it almost always ends harshly but this is advice that we can use anytime when we rush to judgment or a little bit too harsh when we don't have a little bit of neutrality and compassion you know we can spiral things into a negative and into a negative process that we never intended
0: yeah. So maybe it's a question for uh, the leader to ask himself, herself, right? Do I want to keep this vicious cycle, uh, negative cycle going, or do I want to uh, dig deep into self-awareness and ask myself, okay, am I being open-minded? Am I being curious? Am I asking questions and, and this kind of thing? So cool. Uh, you have a theorem, the Erick and High School Theorem. We might've touched on it a bit during our talk, but uh, I want to invite you to, to tell us about the Erick and High School Theorem and how that relates to people reading skills.
1: Well, this is a, this is a joke I made in the book where, you know, I was talking about the issue of we're not very good at reading people, but what we, what we need to do is focus on making them more readable. And the joke I made was related to education. I said, if I want to graduate first in my class, there's two ways I can do it. I can either improve my grades or I can make everybody else's grades worse because it's a relative position. And so same thing here, since we're not that good at reading people, what we want to do is make them send stronger signals. There's a few ways we can do that. You know, usually we're thinking just about the two people, but the truth is that context is really powerful. If you have the option to deal with people in a situation outside of a more formal face to face, very neutral environment, you can read them better. So for instance, if I I was meeting someone and we were to play a sport, I could see, do they cooperate? You know, do they cheat? How do they they make decisions? I'm getting a lot more information from their decisions by the environment that they're in. The other thing is the issue of having other people involved. You know, other people can show us different facets of someone we're trying to understand better. I don't think anybody would, would, if you only dealt with someone in the presence of their boss, would you think that you were getting the whole them? It's very unlikely that you would. And past that, we want to talk about topics that are a little bit more controversial. We don't want to go to the extremes, but getting emotional reactions from, from people versus just talking about the weather, we can get more honest responses. We can see who they are. We can see how they feel about things. We usually try and keep things very calm, very safe, but that leads to very pat answers versus talking about stuff that's a little bit spicier can get us a little bit more honest ideas about where this person stands and how they feel about things, what their values are and who they are.
0: Right. I definitely had a a number of uh, laugh out loud moments reading through your book. So I want to thank you for that. And then what you ended with there, you know, in terms of uh, the spicier topics. And I think you use the idea of uh, using football, right? To to get people um, more honest uh, about how they show up and stuff. I want to bring that into the conversation because I keep thinking, you know, there's, there's an educator shortage. So they will be doing a lot of interviews uh, and trying to build a world-class culture with almost um, a very small pool, right. Of candidates of, of, who can work within the schools. And, you know, Chris Rock talks about like a first date, right. That you're sending a representative. It's not even your real yeah. self. And that's very much like a, like an interview. Uh, you just talked about spicier your um, topics, f- football or whatever. Uh, Any other ideas in terms of like how we can engineer experiences to sort out the fact from fiction and get people to be more honest uh, when school leaders are trying to uh, identify the top talent to bring into their school?
1: Well, I mean, the other thing we can do, like I I said, the primary strategy would be trying to make the other person more readable. But there are a few things we can do to to try and improve our reading skills. Again, it's not going to be huge because we're just not that good at it. But there are a few things we can do on our end. The first thing is that our brains generally are a little bit lazy. They're kind of, they're kind of cost, they're, they're cost efficient. They try not to expend you know, too much energy. And that's one of the reasons why, why we're not as good at reading people. So if you're trying to evaluate candidates, we, you want to be thinking about the stakes. You want to be thinking about there's something to win or lose here. When people are on first dates, they actually are better at reading other people than in general environments. Why? There's something on the line. You have something Mm -hmm. to win, something to lose. There's something to be gained. And that's consistent throughout the literature. So you want to be taking that perspective of getting motivated by saying, hey, you know, we're looking for somebody. We want a great team member. We really stand to gain here. I want to do this well. That'll sharpen your brain a little bit, and you will be able to read people a little bit better when you realize that, hey, something's on the line. It's like, you know, when you bring your A game before before a competition – That's the kind of perspective you want to take. That'll sharpen your brain up. You'll be firing on all cylinders when you're focused on that issue of of losing or gaining something while evaluating someone.
0: Brilliant. Well, Eric, let's take a pause here real quick for some messages from our sponsors. And when we get back, I want to talk about the friendly journalist method. Learn the frameworks, skills, and knowledge you need to drive change improvement in your learning community with Harvard's online certificate in school management and leadership. A joint collaboration between the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Harvard Business School. Connect and collaborate with fellow school leaders as you address your problems of practice in our online professional development program. Apply today at betterleadersbetterschools.com harvard that's betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Establish your legacy with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Learn from Harvard Business and Education School faculty as you develop the frameworks, skills, and knowledge you need to drive change improvement in your learning community. Apply now for our June 22 cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. All right. And we're back with Eric Barker, bestselling author who has a new book that I highly recommend you check out calling Playing Well with Others. Uh, This book is about what we get wrong when it comes to relationships and how we can be a bit more right. And oh yeah, Eric reveals the meaning of life as well. But I promised the ruckus maker listening that we were going to talk about the friendly journalist method and how that can help the ruckus maker with listening.
1: Yeah, so this is uh, what I call the the best strategy for detecting lies. Basically, you know, college students lie in about a third of conversations. Adults lie in about 20% of conversations. Uh, We lie most frequently to mom, but we tell the biggest lies to our spouse. There's a lot of lying going on. So lie detection is, you know, obviously a really powerful skill, but most of the information that we've gotten is not backed up by the research. We usually think about the polygraph, which is focused on detecting stress and anxiety. And the truth is, stress and anxiety really isn't correlated with lies. If we go down that road, it's not going to be helpful. You know, what is a valuable strategy for detecting lies is cognitive load. Basically, what this is, is that telling lies takes a lot of brain power. You need to think about the truth. You need to think about your lie. You need to update that in real time. You need to think about whether the other person's catching on. So when trying to detect a liar, what you want to do is up the cognitive load. You want to put them in a situation where they have to think even harder. And that will slow them down, make them think. Merely telling police officers, instead, when they're trying to detect lies, when they told police officers, don't think about, is this person lying? Instead, ask yourself the question, does this person have to think hard? Mm -hmm. That switch alone, from the first question to the second question, Notably increased police ability to t- detect lies. So the really critical thing here, I call, I call the friendly, friendly journalist method, is you know what does a lawyer tell a criminal client? They say don't talk, don't say, they say don't, don't tell the truth, don't lie, don't say anything, and that's actually pretty pretty good advice from a lot from a lawyer. And that's why when we're trying to detect lies, we want to use the friendly journalist method. We want to be friendly. We don't want to be bad cop. We want to be good cop. We want to get them talking. We want to get get them to say as much as possible. The more information we have, the more more potential there is for them to contradict themselves. And then the big thing, one of the big strategies that's very effective in detecting lies is to use unanticipated questions. What that is, is a liar can't prepare for everything you would probably ask them. So if you think about a question they probably didn't prepare for, they're going to have to think harder. They're going to have to make something up on the fly. And that's probably going to give them away.
0: Right, right. Uh, So after the Ruckus Maker reads Play Well with Others, you should go check out um, The Truth About Pam, I think it was called. My wife and I really enjoyed that show. Uh, But you could see this woman who did terrible, terrible things get caught in lies. And I think that friendly journalist method was used uh, there by the police and the lawyers. Okay. well, I think the last question regarding the book I want to ask has to do about the importance of belonging. I have a framework um, called the ABCs of Powerful Professional Development, and that stands for Authenticity, Belonging, and Challenge, and it's uh, why a leadership community I have for school leaders really thrives. And so belonging is uh, really important to me and definitely has a place in my heart. And so when you're thinking about the importance of belonging and the ruckus maker listening is, is thinking about building more belonging in his or her school, and uh, the story that they want to tell that, that unites people, what, what advice might you offer them?
1: I mean, you know, belonging is really critical. You know, when people feel, basically the research, this research by Roy Baumeister, you know, shows that, you know, when we feel like we belong, this, this is strongly correlated with meaning in life. And one could argue it is the meaning of life, that, that feeling like we, we belong. And so much of this comes down to, as I talk about in the friendship chapter, really is similarity, similarity in stories. You know, Dale Carnegie talked about mentioning things that, you know, are similar between you and the other person. And this has been validated by scientific research. Find something that we all share. This is what any community has in common. But then moving to the issue of stories, and this is something that thematically runs through my entire book, is that stories are critical. When we're reading people, again, first impressions, we're telling ourselves a story about this person. You know, Friendships, it's like this is a story we tell ourselves that this other person is actually a part of us. That's what the research shows. In marriage, John Gottman, who's the leading researcher on love and marriage, he's able to detect whether a couple will break up or not, they'll divorce or not the next five years with over 90% accuracy. And how does he do that? Very simple. He asks them to tell their story. You know, stories are really critical and communities have stories as well. Any form of community from family to school to nation. We have a story that we tell ourselves about the group. So seeking to find similarity and then finding that story that unites us, this is really critical because we've seen sometimes there are stories that separate us. There are differences we have. But the issue is, you know, stories don't there doesn't only have to be one story. You can have multiple stories, you know. We can have grown up in the same city. You know, we could be the same religion. We could have gone to the same school. We could both be Star Wars fans. There are many things that can unite us, many stories we can tell to bond us together. So thinking about those issues of similarity, the stories that we have, and that's how we can build a community that's, that's strong where we all feel a part of something.
0: And Eric, if you were going to put a message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message read? I would say community. I think it's, it's really critical that, you know,
1: the learning is going to happen. You know, that, that is, that's what schools are for. But for everybody to feel a part of something, for everybody to feel like they're in it together, for students to feel like they're not in competition, that they're a part of something, you know, kids will, kids will learn the skills and the knowledge. But we also need to make sure they, they learn how to be part of a team. They learn how to work together. They learn how to care about one another. You know, those skills are so powerful and typically those things don't get graded quite as often so i think you know community that that can often be the the part that often gets neglected in group settings so i think that would that would be a good saving
0: brilliant and if eric barker was building his dream school and you're not limited by any resources your only limitation was your imagination how would you build that dream school what would be the three guiding principles i think i would say probably
1: Curiosity, effort, and compassion would probably be the key things because I, I think so often if we make the effort to make something interesting, you know, and we and we have the power to do that. A topic, a subject, you know, kids are endlessly curious. If we can bridge that gap between the subject matter and between an angle that might make them go, hmm, you know, curiosity can do so much of the work for us, and then effort. Yeah, you know, rolling up our sleeves, being resilient, being optimistic, you know, having the feeling that this is all worth it and that good things are gonna happen is so powerful. You know, it's 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 really it's really difficult. And then finally, I would say compassion in the sense of there's always room for compassion. And like we talked about earlier, it's like asking questions, you know, talking, understanding. We're usually too quick to rush to judgment and we're not as quick to understand. And I feel like a little bit of compassion just, just makes all of the world and all of life a little bit easier.
0: Absolutely. Well, Eric, thanks for joining me again on the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Congrats on the book, uh, Plays Well with Others, that I recommend ruckus makers go out and get. Of all the things we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker listening to remember?
1: I, I think that it, one thing I would tell everybody is from the research, friends make us happier than any other relationship any other relationship and I think that's something we should keep in mind individually but I think ruckus makers could keep in mind when it comes to to their students that building a, building a school building a community where kids feel friends this is the quickest way to, to build happiness this is research by a Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman so in our personal lives and when thinking about your students you know friendship and creating an environment that sustains friendship that's what leads to happiness and happiness is a pretty good thing